Hello everyone, I'm David Berner, Associate Professor in the Communication Department at Columbia College Chicago, and this is the Radio Storytelling Showcase for the fall of 2021. The class uh, put together a number of stories, and these were their final pieces. We're going to run them right after each other. Stories about all kinds of issues and concerns and worries and loves and fears. All, all of the emotions are touched upon in these stories. Uh, the class uh, pulled together some really nice pieces for the last piece of the semester, and we're going to let them play for you here. Enjoy. During the summer of 2020, I was on my roller skating grind. Determined and committed, I was found practicing in my home driveway every day before I left for Chicago in the fall. I needed to be solid at skating backwards before I even touched the streets of Chicago. No days off. You know, I love to live on the edge, and the first few months of me skating in Chicago, I didn't have anything to protect myself. I had gotten relatively good back home being able to skate backwards, inversions, mini jumps. I was pretty satisfied with my skills, but I didn't have any knee pads, no elbow pads, no helmet, just me and the cute outfits I pulled off. The only injuries I really got were a few scraped knees, but that's what was so fun about it. The adrenaline kept me pumping. And helmets look stupid. So this one time, my friend Anna and I went skating, and I recommended we try a new path. Instead of our regular Lake French Trail, we started on the bridge. Views of the skate park and the astounding skyline distracted me from analyzing our current path. Doe-eyed and naive, my friend and I just went on our devilish skates without asking any questions and rolled off. While skating down the path, I realized that we are going pretty fast and are only increasing in speed. My friend Anna asked, is this a hill? I responded, uh, I'm not actually so sure. Starting to realize that we may be going down a ginormous winding hill. The awareness hits very quickly as I hear my friend start to panic and scream. Hearing her screams, now I start to panic too. I only have two choices, bail or try and attempt this hill. What do I do? What do I do? My blank mind is trying to come up with a decision while my heart is beating out of my chest. I wasn't ready for this hill, so I bailed. Reaching for the stone ledge, I try to stop myself a little bit early, but I'm just going too fast. My face bangs on the ledge and I fall to the ground, but at least I stopped my speed. All I feel is pain. I look back and see a couple laughing at me as I'm just sitting there. Embarrassed, I get up, not realizing that I haven't even started the hill and I have to go down it again. So I go down the hill again and I end up flailing my body into this giant grass patch that's like a ways away. And my body literally bounces twice from the fall. My body is shaking from the adrenaline and I cannot stop laughing because I can't believe that happened. I feel blood dripping down my face, so I pull out my phone and pull out the camera. Yikes. I see a giant gash on the top of my nose and a piece of skin is missing. It's a bloody mess. I was ready to go home. Just 15 minutes of a skate sesh had turned into a disaster. I was defeated and my self-confidence had depleted tremendously. Sitting on my couch wearing Paw Patrol band-aids every day made me feel so foolish, like a person who had just lost a fight. I was battered and bruised and I didn't want to leave my couch until my wound was healed. I didn't even want to skate ever again, but I knew I shouldn't just give up. I eventually started owning the band-aid on my face. I just acted like it didn't even exist. I went outside, hung out with friends, and even went to parties. 
People didn't even ask me about my band-aid until I brought it up. They just thought I was wearing it as a fashion statement. What? Okay, uh, maybe it really wasn't that bad. It took me a few days to finally accept my situation. Yes, my face was hurt, but is it ruined? No. Am I still alive? Yes. Am I still beautiful? Duh! Wounds heal and time goes on. Whenever someone tells me to think about my favorite childhood memory, I always think of airplanes. When I was a little girl, my dad used to work so much, especially during summertime. He'd rarely spend time with my mom, my brothers, and me, even on the weekends. He would be off to work pretty early in the mornings and wouldn't come back home until dark. He worked in construction, so when it rained, he didn't have to work at all. Roads were floated and the plants were closed, and those were my favorite days. My dad will plan all kinds of activities to do with us. But of all the plans and places he took us, my favorite was to go to see the planes take off. I remember that in the afternoon, before it got dark, my dad would drive us to McDonald's and we would get all the food we wanted, all to go. And after that stop, we'd go to the gas station to get candy. And then he would drive to the airport and park the truck in an alley near the runway where planes take off and land. My father would open the trunk and we would sit there to eat and watch the planes fly by. I was still very young, but I remember how excited I was to see the planes right above my head. I was so small. They were giants to me. And the view was beautiful, especially at night. They looked like shooting stars, one after another. Over time, my brothers, who were older than me, got bored of going to see the planes, and my dad just stopped taking us. But me, I was never bored, not once. On April 15, 2013, two days after my 12th birthday, two homemade explosions went off at the finish line of the 116th annual Boston Marathon, killing three people and injuring 17. I remember that birthday so well because my mom took me to go see my first PG-13 movie in theaters, and I remember feeling like I wasn't a kid anymore. I thought I was finally an adult. My mom had taken me and my siblings to the marathon to support the husband of her best friend. We were sitting in a park surrounded by dozens of other families, cheering on runners and laying out in the sun. I remember eating the most amazing grilled cheese as they passed by the 26-mile marker. 0.2 miles left. And then, at 2.41 p.m., Three hours after the first place runner had crossed the finish line, two bombs went off. 14 seconds and 210 feet apart. And then, chaos. These moments are really blurry for me. I remember people fleeing from the blasts, leaving everything behind. 
I remember it looked like everyone had been raptured up and just my family was left behind. At first, the news was saying that it was an electrical explosion, but I knew in my bones that something was really wrong. As we roamed the streets looking for any place to sit down and gather ourselves, I remember yelling at my brothers for fooling around and playing in the empty streets. They weren't being grown up. We had to be adults. We ended up in a little pizza shop across town and ordered some slices as we waited for hours until my dad came to pick us up. And then we just went home and we never really talked about it after that. Two days later, the FBI released the pictures of the two suspects and asked for the public to help in identifying the two men who planted the bombs. I remember the news was on every station. After a few days, the brothers were identified as Johar and Tamerlan Sarnayev, two brothers, two terrorists, two homemade pressure cooker bombs. After their photos were released as suspects, the brothers went on to kill an MIT police officer while carjacking an SUV, ending in a shootout with the police, killing Tamerlan as his brother drove away. The next week was a manhunt all over Massachusetts until they found Johar hidden in some unsuspecting family's off-season boat in their backyard. The news was circulating for weeks and it was like I couldn't avoid it. It wasn't something I experienced anymore. It was just a huge news story. It really scares me that I can forget such a traumatic day in my life. Huge, life-shattering events that changed my whole world, but I skip over the worst days of my memory. I feel like I will spend the next years of my life trying to remember pieces of my trauma. I'm not sure how or why, but it feels like as I grow as an adult, I unlock pieces of my childhood. Pieces that changed my idea of the happy kid I thought I was. For so long, I feel like so many issues went over my head and I was oblivious to the problems going on in my family. Problems that I was going through. I forget about the bombing and all the other traumas I've gone through in my life until the day I was ready. Or maybe I wasn't ready, but it was time to come up. And I feel every single emotion hit my body uh, a million miles an hour. I usually cry because it hurts, but also because I have an explanation for why I have ended up the way that I have. I'm dealing with my trauma one day at a time. Some days it overflows me and fills my lungs so I can't breathe but drowning isn't scary. Some days I float. The two biggest fears in the United States are public speaking and death. However, public speaking is first and death is second, meaning people would rather be in the casket than give the eulogy. Public speaking is something I wasn't always good at. As a matter of fact, it terrified me at first, but over time it became a skill that I learned and eventually became excited about. And it was at the state championship in the fall of 2019 that I had the most fun and my proudest moment. I was a part of the College of DuPage speech and debate team. They are a community college in the suburbs of Illinois. The coaches at COD trained me in three events and I took those events to the state championship. The events were parliamentary debate, IPDA debate, and extemporaneous speaking. My proudest moment had to be in the final round of IPDA debate. Now, IPDA debate, or International Debate Association, is a style of debate that is a 1v1. Both sides have a short list of topics to debate over called resolutions. Both sides proceed to strike a resolution they don't like until one is left. Afterwards, they have 30 minutes of preparation time. My opponent lost the coin toss, so I got to choose what side I wanted, which was negation. Now, 
in debate, there are two sides. There's the affirmative, their job is to affirm whatever the, the resolution says. And there is negation, who don't necessarily have to negate the resolution, they just need to prove that the affirmative didn't prove anything. My usual tactic in debate is to use data against my opposition. Whatever their position is, I would find sources that agree with my position on X, Y, or Z, and just make sure that I make a case that my data in sources is far more important and relevant than my opponent. It's a pretty straightforward facts and logics over all else approach in my debates mixed in with my own personal flair. My opponent, however, managed to get a resolution that is fairly hard to argue against. That resolution being, felons after serving their time in prison deserve the right to vote. That resolution is very hard to argue against, because all the data points to my opponent being right, so I knew I had to change my strategy. In that final round, I faced off against the rising star of Harper College, one of COD's two rival schools. I had not competed against her up to that point, but from what I had heard, she was an amazing debater, so I was excited for this round. When we met in that room, we modeled ourselves as the gladiators of old, but instead of using sword and shield in our fight, it was our voice and our pens that were our weapons of choice. Everyone settled into their seats, and the three judges prepared themselves for what they were about to see. As my opponent walked to the stand, I knew I was in for a hard fight, as we went in on each other in rhetorical and intellectual combat. Her points were strong talking about how felons who have done their time do deserve the right to vote because our justice system shouldn't be a lifelong punishment. If you serve your time in prison, then you deserve to go back into society and reincorporate yourself into the modern world. Just makes sense. She made a lot of convincing points that I started to agree with her. Like, I already agreed that felons deserve the right to vote, but I was like, dang, she should win this. But also... So should I. This is where we start to enter my proudest moment because I was arguing in favor of something that I didn't believe in and used a rhetorical strategy that I strongly disagree with. Essentially, during my preparation time, I knew I couldn't argue based on things like logic and reasoning like I usually do. Those weren't my friends in this debate. I had to appeal to the judge's emotions because the moment you point out the racial disparity and how a lot of felons are there for minor drug charges that don't deserve you losing the right to vote, I knew I would lose if I fought against that. So I didn't. I avoided it like the plague. She forgot to mention those two crucial facts in her argument, so I did my damnedest to make sure I never brought them up and instead focused on other reasons for being a felon and painted it as a crime against society. And if someone commits a crime against their own society, why should they have a say in it? Blah, blah, blah. I personally hate that argument because it doesn't look at the reality of the situation and just appeals to one's emotions, but hey, I wanted to win. And that's all I had, so I used it to the best of my ability. Another good thing about this style of debate is that while in other forms of debate, the judges should weigh more your argument and reasoning and your sources, not an IPDA. In IPDA debate, the judges are told to weigh more your speaking ability and rhetorical tactics. So although reality itself was on my opponent's side, I still managed to get the judges to agree with me, or at least two out of the three to buy my nonsense. This debate was incredibly hard fought, and it was through my effort that I learned more about myself. The reason why I find this to be one of my proudest moments is not only because I won the state championship of Illinois, but I managed to win by using a rhetorical strategy that I not only hate, but did my hardest to avoid using the entirety of my speech debate career. It showed me how versatile I could be in high pressure situations, and I also realized a rather interesting reality. It doesn't matter what you say, it's how you say it. Cultivating a relationship online can be the most unconventional way to meet someone. Twitter being one of those places, you sort of put up this wall and tend not to trust people online because, you know, it's been instilled in us from a young age, don't talk to strangers. But what happens when you talk to somebody every day from the internet and you start to break down these walls? What happens if this person isn't even from the same state as you? Never did I think I would be meeting someone I met online to go on a date, but here I was. 
absolutely going against everything my true crime podcast told me not to do. Not only had it been four months since we first started talking, but I also gave this man my address. What was wrong with me? How did this all start with me replying to a tweet about the early November? He had shared his location with me to show how far he was, and I was watching it like a hawk while I was getting ready. It was 11am and we were about to have our first date. After multiple FaceTimes and text messages every single day, my apprehensions and walls started coming down and I was so, so nervous. As I finished putting on the last of my makeup, I get the, I'm here, text. I walk to my kitchen where I see the parking lot, and there he is, standing in front of his car with a thing of flowers. Now, I'm thinking this is going to be some cinematic first meeting, and upon opening the door to go outside, I'm met face-to-face with my mom. So, I awkwardly introduce her to him and give him possibly one of the most stiff and stale hugs I could have ever given someone. She smiles at us, and she tells us to go have fun. We hop in the car, and he immediately hands me a square envelope. Oh? What's this? I ask. I spent all last night making it. I hope you like it, he says. I turn it over, and I see a track list. You mean to tell me this man made me a mix CD? I read over the track list, and I realized that there are a lot of songs on there that we had listened to together, either over FaceTime or through text just sending each other our reactions. Little did I know that this would be the soundtrack to our whole first date. Tracks one through three are spent going to the first location of our date, breakfast. Tracks four to seven are spent going to a local record store. Tracks eight to 10 are spent going to a tiny $5 movie theater in my neighborhood. Tracks 11 to 18 are spent driving to the record store that I work at where he then meets my best friend. Finally, tracks 18 to 22 are spent driving to my house and ending the night. He asks me to be exclusive, and looking back at the past four months, I say yes. As I'm about to say bye to this man after spending about 12 hours with him and taking my mix CD out of the car radio, he hands me two other gifts. One of them is a hoodie, because who knows how soon I'll see him again. The other is a beige and white vinyl record that looks very familiar, and then I read across the cover, the early November the band that started it all and the whole reason why I DM'd him in the first place. This day happened four years ago, and not only did it start my elaborate vinyl collection, but also probably the most healthy and loving relationship I have ever had. It's an odd way to get to know someone when they're dying. That sounds harsh, I know, but when my grandfather came to live with me and my parents, he and I both understood that he was fading. I used to spend a lot of time with my grandfather when I was younger. He was one of the first people other than my parents to hold me as a baby. We used to visit him a lot when we lived closer in Virginia, and when we moved to Wisconsin, he used to come and visit every 4th of July. Well, for a few years. And after that, I didn't see him very often. That was until he arrived at my house on Halloween just before my 12th birthday. He was a tall man, well, at least tall to me. And he had strands of white, wispy hair and a bit of a stubbly beard. He always wore the same brown jacket, and in the winter he would wear the same black and green hat. Most importantly, he always wore a smile on his face, no matter the situation. The only thing I could ever remember him complaining about was how cold our tap water was. And it's well water, so it is pretty damn cold. He was a man of some unique habits, for sure. It was part of the reason I was so fascinated with him. He always took walks, walks everywhere, every day, all the time. He never had any specific destination in mind. He always just wandered, taking in the neighborhood, always taking the time to stop and look at the flowers or listen to the birds. A byproduct of all this wandering, however, was all the rocks that he would bring home with him. We never knew where these rocks came from. They'd be all shapes and sizes. Some were like landscaping rocks, but he would always show up with them and just leave them by the front door. There's still a small pile of them there to this day. He also had this tradition where he would go out to the bench at the end of our street and watch the sun go down over the lake. He called it putting the sun to bed. And he did this all throughout the year, almost every day. And it was always charming to me. It seemed like such a lovely tradition. However, 
One of the most interesting things about my grandfather was his habit of sleep talking. Whether it was just his old age or a byproduct of his meds, my grandfather took a lot of naps. Usually out in the sunroom of our house, cuddled up with our cat. Occasionally, he would sleep talk, and not just mumbling or incoherent dream words, but like full stories. Many times if I was doing homework or having a snack, I would just sit and listen. My grandfather had lived a very exciting life. He grew up in rural Ohio on a farm with a pet owl, and he worked as a private investigator in Miami, and then spent years traveling across the world with his fishing business. But I didn't know him then. I only knew him as the quirky old man that lived in my house. And when he would sleep talk, it was like I got these snapshots of a former life. A life that he couldn't always recall when he woke up. In his sleep, I heard him sing songs, or yell at my uncle, or tell fantastical stories about faraway places like the southern point of Chile. Oftentimes, the stories would start in strange places, or trail off into nothing, or he would wake up in the middle of them. It was like picking up on a faraway radio station for just a moment on a road trip. I still made plenty of good memories with my grandfather while he was awake. We made jokes at the dinner table, he came to see so many of my band and orchestra concerts, and we went on countless walks. But something about those moments when I got to listen to his sleep talking were very magical to me. Memory is such a bizarre and beautiful thing. It's terribly sad to watch someone lose their memories, and it's not something that I ever wish upon anyone. Memories are the only things we ever get to really know in this world. And to see that taken away from someone is heartbreaking. But there are moments when memory shines through the cloudiness of dementia and old age, and those moments are beautiful. It's been many years since my grandfather passed away, but he lives on in how I remember him. He still lives with the bench at the end of the street, and he lives in the little rock pile next to our front door, and he lives in his favorite nap spot on the couch. Even as those things grow old and fade away, I still carry them in my memories of those few years in my early teens. Sometimes I wonder if he will someday live on in the stories that I tell while I lay fast asleep on a couch somewhere in the sun. And if so, I hope someone's there to listen. This is a radio storytelling showcase on WCRX Chicago. A thrumming crowd. Thousands of people surrounding me with colorful cosplays and loud conversations. It didn't help my anxiety the day I met my best friends. I had spent hundreds of hours with them before that day, but they had no idea who I was. It's called a parasocial relationship, and it's a phenomenon that is actually quite common. It's a relationship experienced by an audience member with a person or character in mass media. The audience member develops feelings of intimacy and friendship with the persona in question. Extreme examples would be fans that begin stalking their idols, convinced that they know them and have a right to be in their life. But lesser examples occur all the time. In fact, you probably have one or more parasocial relationships right now. Perhaps with characters in your favorite TV show, celebrities that you religiously follow on social media, people who feel comfortable to be around and who you feel like you could confide in even though, in reality, they don't know who you are. And welcome to tonight's episode of Critical Role, Yay! where a bunch of mercenary-ass voice actors sit around and play Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> or that. We also do that, I guess. Uh... My deepest parasocial relationships are with the cast and crew of Critical Role, a weekly live stream of nerdy voice actors playing Dungeons & Dragons. During my darkest times... Matt and Marisha whisked me into a storyline of magic and mystery. Sam cheered me up with terrible slapdash comedy sketches when the last thing I wanted to do was laugh. 
the entire cast playing D&D for hours on end, has lulled me to sleep most nights throughout the pandemic. Right before the pandemic shut everything down in early March 2020, I met Marisha Ray at the Chicago Comic and Entertainment Expo, also known as C2E2, and saw the rest of the cast at the live show downtown earlier that weekend. It was a heart-fluttering experience to be in the same room as them all, let alone to have Marisha put an arm around me for a photo. But there was something supremely disappointing in it as well. I had to introduce myself to my heroes. And even having done so, I know that now, they no longer know who I am. I was one of hundreds, if not thousands, of fans they met that weekend. To meet the people I idolize and be faced with reality. To have felt like I know these people, recognize myself in them, and trust them more than anyone else. Only to be reminded that they don't know who I am. It was heartbreaking to realize it's caused me to rethink my desire to meet the people I look up to. I think I'm happier living in my parasocial relationships without being reminded that my feelings aren't reciprocated. I'd rather live with my friends in our intimate relationship, even if it's just in my head. It was a rainy June morning in the summer of 2019. I had just graduated from high school and I was ready to bum out all summer. I was working at my high school teaching swim lessons to kids and I was getting paid about $10 an hour in order to come in for eight hours and try to get these kids to listen to me. And I'm not somebody who's deeply unsettled by children, but everyone has their limit on how much child-related shenanigans they can take before it becomes too much. This particular morning was the breaking point for me. You know how whenever you're in a rush to get somewhere, every little thing and person seems to be hellbent on making sure to inconvenience you on the way? It was one of those mornings. I had slept through my alarm, and I was rushing through the house, getting ready for the day. I left the house at 8.05, hoping that if I drove quickly enough, I might be able to make it there by 8. And to top it all off, it was a Monday. So there's that. I pulled into the parking lot, and after completing the saddest attempts at parking to date, I sped through the front doors and into the pool room, frantically working off my clothes, stripping down to my swim trunks, and only to discover that the only students that had come today were the four that I could not stand in particular. And this boy named Staunch, the ringleader of this quarrelsome quartet, took note of my tardy arrival and inquired with the utmost smarminess, where have you been? I apologized Sorry, for my lateness, but the next five minutes were made up of me trying to get the lesson back on track, and the four of them interrogating me about the reason for me being late. We made little to no progress in the actual lesson of the day, but by the time the lesson was over, I had concluded that having half of my teeth pulled would have probably been way less painful than the previous 45 minutes I'd have had to endure. And I must have made this conclusion out loud because a co-worker named Catherine overheard me and asked me what was up. At first I said it was nothing and I turned away. Catherine was stationed in the lane next to me and we had a five minute break before the next group of students came in. So I knew that I wasn't going to get off easy without explaining myself. So I prepared some half-assed excuse for my tardiness and before I knew it my half-assed excuse turned into a rant about un how unfair life is and the concept of working for a living is just stupid and all that. Somewhere in my ramblings, I must have mentioned Disney and all that, so I finished my ranting and made eye contact with her. She stared back at me with gentle concern and asked with the purest of tenderness, Who hurt you, Eric? My dislike for Disney at the time was well noted, but she noticed something about me that I would never have realized on my own. I would constantly reference Disney movies in my conversations, but it would only be for movies released before 2012, 
Catherine pointed this out to me and then asked the next question with equal tenderness. What happened in 2012? It was Christmas 2012, I said to Catherine. She turns to me with full attentiveness, as if I was a student of hers getting ready to tell her their life story, which I strangely appreciated. I then divulged the following story to her. Instead of presents that year, I begged my parents to take us to Disney World, and it was the best Christmas ever. I saw all my friends in the flush for the first time, I got all their autographs, I collected and traded dozens of pins, and I even met my namesake, Prince Eric from The Little Mermaid. I couldn't wait to share my life-changing experience with all my friends and classmates, but horror was just around the riverbend, so to speak. I watched in terror as they destroyed my souvenirs. They shredded my autograph book. They flushed all my pins down the toilet. And from then on, I shed my naive love of Disney. And I realized how misled I was. And I hated the mouse and everything that he stood for. And when I finished my story, Catherine looked at me with such pity. She gave me a long hug that I didn't realize I needed. After work that day, we had a long talk about the sucky parts of childhood and how they can affect us for years. By the end of our impromptu therapy session, all the stress that I had endured back in 2012 seemed so minor, and I couldn't help but laugh at it. I, I laughed until tears fell from my eyes. It felt as though my heart grew three times that day, just like the Grinch, which surprisingly isn't a Disney reference. Just like that, it had gone from a terrible Monday to a major turning point on my outlook in life. Who would have thought? Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. This is not a motivational story. For those who don't know, sports betting has been legalized in Illinois, and it's a main topic of conversation every single day sports-related. You can't go to a bar or restaurant and watch a game without hearing people talk about sports betting in general. Over. Under. Spread. Lock. These are all terms thrown around by the general public 24-7 these days at every sports bar and grill. Sports betting is viewed as a hobby. Lots of people do it recreationally at first, but that's just the beginning. If I told you to invest in something only one out of a hundred people become profitable in, would you do it? I think we all know that answer is no. Something the general public doesn't realize is casinos, sportsbooks, and everything advertising sports gambling is all designed for one reason to get your money into their pocket. Unfortunately for me, I learned this too late. Months of back and forth of winning, losing, upswings, downswings, led to me losing every single dollar I had. The countless hours, the countless days spent saving up as much money as possible, gone within months. I often found myself late at night, staring at the ceiling in my room, thinking, what the hell did I just do? When you're chasing things and betting insane amounts of money trying to win yours back, you fall into a deep, dark hole many people around the world experience. And that deep, dark hole was felt by me. To put it very simply, I was depressed. Every single day, sleeping in until 3 to 4 p.m., staying up until 5 to 6 a.m. I often find myself on my phone just scrolling for hours, screen times of 10 plus hours a day, just sitting there, not getting out of bed. And with sports betting continuing to be legalized everywhere, it's only going to grow and happen to more people. That is why I'm telling this story. To raise awareness to the dark topic of sports gambling and the sports business nobody truly knows about until it's too late. Many people live in regret. And I obviously regret what I've done getting into such a dangerous lifestyle. You truly don't know something is ruining your life until it's too late. If there's advice I can give to everyone listening today, live a healthy lifestyle. Do what makes you happy. Hang around with as much positive energy as possible. I've dealt with a lot of demons in the past, and now I hope to live a better lifestyle, and more importantly, a healthier one. Surround yourself with individuals that will help you and help achieve your goals. In the end, everybody has demons, and it's just a matter of if you're gonna sit down and let that take over your life or you're going to get up, stop feeling sorry for yourself and achieve your goals that you set out. Last year, I got a lot of clarity about who I am, 
who I want to be and what I need to get closer to that person. My family would describe me as introverted, mean, a loner, maybe funny. I don't think that I was mean. I realize now that I've never really been comfortable around my family. And I comfort myself with distance. I mean, about as much distance as a kid can have. I realized through introspection and therapy that they had these fixed ideas about me that they were certain about. They would force them on me, try to tell me who I was while I was still forming a personhood. Some good, often insulting. Last year, my mind began separating the what I've been told into what is true and what I simply allowed myself to believe because I was told it so much. I can't say it hasn't been an emotional time. It's a special kind of disappointment to know that the people who are supposed to safeguard you and encourage you are responsible for your warped sense of self that you have carried for more of your life than not. It's also a gift. The moment I realized the person I've been told I was is not who I truly am, I began to lean into my own narrative. Once I start putting the slightest bit of effort into being who I think I am, I finally felt hope and love for myself for the first time in a long time instead of disappointment or indifference. This also taught me more about people as a whole. A lot of what my family has said to me is because they wanted me to fit in with them more or to engage with them in a certain way I wasn't. When people have a need, especially an emotional or physical one, they can become so myopic in that quest that they forget how to interact with humanity properly. They forget how people need to be treated in order for there to be positive experience. They forget kindness. Everyone is important to some degree, but I've come to find that no one is as important as they think they are. Everyone is the main character in their own story. When you lean too much into that sentiment without being able to remind yourself that there are still other characters, the way you move becomes selfish and full of disregard. We can see that in people's mindsets as civil unrest continues. We can see that in people's ability to not take this pandemic seriously. You can see it in how customers treat the cashier at the grocery store. It is what it is, but I try to remember this when I talk more than I listen. When I pity myself and need to remember how relatively healthy and secure I am. I remember this when cultures that I am not a part of are struggling in profound ways and it's their time for protest. I remember that there's always more and it's never about just one thing. As we walked into my best friend Lau's house, I could hear music playing from the TV and the sound of drumsticks banging against an electric drum set. As me and my family entered the living room, we could see Lau and her dad playing the Beatles rock band video game on Wii. This was during the golden years of music-based video games. I didn't know much about the Beatles. All I listened to back then was just 80s and 90s hard rock thanks to my dad and Latin singer-songwriters like Juanes and Laureja de Rango thanks to my mom. What is this? I asked. It's the Beatles rock band replied Lau. Who are the Beatles? When I asked this, you could hear Lau's jaw drop to the floor so hard it broke a hole through it. She quickly took me to her room and showed me as many songs as she knew of the legendary band and like that, I was hooked. I'm not gonna use this essay to talk about how influential the Beatles were to me because what else can be said of them that hasn't already? But they did open my eyes to a simpler and at the same time genius type of rock music that left me wondering how have I not heard this before? They soon became a new regular in my music rotation. 
Cut to a couple years later, I'm a junior in high school. I recently started to hang out with a new group of people that helped me expand my social circle after hanging out with the same five antisocial people for the last six years. Everyone listened to reggaeton, rap, and trap music. If you were born and raised in Puerto Rico, it's inevitable to escape reggaeton. When I was young, I used the computer to watch music videos of Wisin y Yandel trying to hide it from my parents because who would want their eight-year-old child to watch a music video with 17 women twerking around a dude rapping about sex or guns? My parents didn't mind it as much, but for some reason, I started to resent it. Now in high school, I couldn't escape it, so if you can't beat them, join them. I downloaded SoundCloud on my phone and began to get reacquainted with the genre I abandoned, while being introduced to the new generation of artists that will soon take over not only Puerto Rico and Latin America, but the world. Who was the artist leading the charge of this new generation? Bad Bunny, of course. I put on one of his most popular singles at the time, Soy Peor, and like that moment with the Beatles, I was hooked. So hooked, in fact, that I now have a podcast about this music scene, which has helped me appreciate not just this genre, but music as a whole in an entirely new way. Cut to a couple months later, I'm in Houston, Texas for Thanksgiving. A lot of my extended family flew over there to spend the holidays together. After the huge party that greeted us, most of the adults left to sleep and prepare for another day of drinking and partying. But us cousins had some extracurricular activities planned. After all of us being high in the clouds, one of my cousins suggested we chill out by listening to one of his favorite artists, Kevin Parker, a.k.a. Tame Impala. He put the album Currents on the record player, and what came out of that was something I never in my life expected to hear. To this day, it's hard to describe, but the trippy sounds and synths mixed with catchy beats and introspective lyrics made for one badass trip. These three isolated incidents opened my ears to new sounds that made my imagination roam wild. The Beatles led me to discover more bands and musicians that broke from the norm, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. Bad Bunny led me to discover what I had been missing all this time and was the gateway to introduce me to some of my favorite artists today, Arcángel, Eladio Garrión, Anuel AA. And Tame Impala helped me realize that the possibilities of music are endless. There's no set of rules to follow to make music and for someone to listen to it. It goes beyond that. It's about the connection one has to a certain sound, a riff, a lyric, anything that makes it so meaningful. Thanks to Tame, I'm still discovering acts like Pond, Los Walters, Buscabulla, I don't consider myself a musician by any means, but music connects me in a way that no other medium has been able to. And for that, I am grateful. I like video games. I'm pretty sure you can tell that about me already. Not sure what that says about me. Nothing's ever been able to squeeze motivation out of me like good video games. Nothing's ever been able to get me to put as much effort into keenly and intimately exploring something's inner workings quite as much. Sure, I was a very lazy and easily distractible kid, but when it came to games, I had a laser focus and a seemingly endless well of motivation. That's exactly what drew me to Speedy's. From the first moment, as the neon-spackled halls of Speedy's flooded into me, I was intoxicated. Arcades are these beautiful pocket dimensions filled with rays of neon light packed with bodies fighting to accompany the same space, a space far away from the problems of life. On top of it, there's this arcade noise. If you've ever truly been in love with an arcade, you'd understand. The machines call signs oozing into each other, and the sounds of footsteps, arguments, and cheers become these tight, warm arms that buzz deep within you that you can instantly mentally call up wherever you are. Then, of course, there were the fighting games. If arcades are pocket dimensions, then fighting games are their laws of physics. The library of fighting games determines who goes there, why they go there, and what type of situations one might get into there. Fighting games were the crucible 
upon which preconceptions of intelligence, skill, and self-worth were dashed and warriors were born. These are why I fell in love with arcades. This might sound odd to you because I'm 20 and the American arcade was and is a phenomenon that's been starving to death now for years. But Speedy's found a niche in the city I grew up in, long enough for me to find out that it was close enough for me to walk to from my house on the weekends. When I got there, the game that I was first drawn to felt as if it was an act of fate. From everything to the hum of the intro screen to the saturated 90s art on the cabinet side, X-Men vs. Street Fighter seemed to call to me. It didn't hurt that I had been dangerously obsessed with the X-Men since I was an even younger and smaller child, and seeing that I could not only play as my favorite characters, but also the Street Fighter characters, who I had never played before but knew of partially through cultural osmosis, I was disturbingly excited. As far as fighting games go, X-Men vs. Street Fighter is a hyper-fast, offensive spectacle of a game. It is unforgiving in every way a game can be. I, unfortunately, had never played a game in this genre in my life, so I couldn't do a single special move, much less win a match against even the second level of the arcade single-player mode. And something you have to know about any real arcade ecosystem is that it's a meritocracy. The weak and uninformed make up the firm bedrock of this cruel, cruel world. Dumping quarters upon quarters in attempts to either become better than those who strip them of their time, dignity, and money, or in an often vain attempt to gain revenge on them. No matter the game, the age of the competitor, or the situation around them, this system was forever in place. There was no such thing as mercy for the beginner. Uh, I didn't know this, however, so I would just button mash as hard as possible whenever I played any of the other children at the arcade, and through pure luck, I was completely successful. I had supposedly gotten this type of games, and I believed that fighting games were contests of who could mash harder and faster. This, of course, is even before the beginning stage of the process of becoming a real arcade threat. Before the ego death. Before you can accept just how little you understand. I practiced for about 30 minutes before someone who seemed to be a bit older than me walked up to the cabinet. They were wearing a black Houston Rockets hat and seemed to have nothing but the fight on their mind, as I could tell from their quiet yet powerful demeanor. Once we got to character select, I immediately navigated to Wolverine like any child would, and they picked Sabretooth. I was familiar with both of these characters from the X-Men show, but I had no idea what they did in game. Not that that mattered to me, though, because I was ready to roll my hand across the punch and kick buttons rather quickly. The first seconds of the match, the mashing began. My opponent responded by doing something I'd never seen before. They blocked. My opponent's saber tooth then knocked my Wolverine into the air and with one hit transported me to a world of infinite entropy, that which I had not understood before. Wolverine was being pummeled before me, taking him from the air to the ground, back to the air, and so on and so on, and I couldn't do a thing about it. No matter how much I flailed, I had to watch as my opponent tortured my favorite character in the most stylish way possible. My boy was dead, and there was nothing I could do about it. It was injustice, as I turned to tell my opponent my many feelings about my loss, they were gone, disappeared as fast as they'd slotted in that quarter. 
Actually, they weren't gone. They were playing Tekken 3 about four machines over. But still, it was clear to me why they left. I wasn't worth it. There were no worthy fighters here in their eyes. Just a punching bag. And this realization filled me with a strong and unshakable sense of shame. Following that, extreme anger. But after that all fell away, I realized something as I walked home letting the salt wash off of me. A cold, hard fact that couldn't be broken. That that saber-tooth combo looked really, really cool and that I wanted to do it to someone else. That weekend, I went to put the work in. And the weekend after that, and the weekend after that, I picked Sabretooth and fought anyone and everyone I could. And I got beat solidly for about a year. But I was getting better. Even then, it took a long time before I became the end boss of the arcade before my undefeated streaks and tournament placings, before the bevy of physical altercations I had gotten with exploiting jank in old fighting games. But those are stories for other times. Arcades are places where anyone can thrive. They're where stories are born and champions are made. What's your favorite Miku? Perhaps it's Martin McCutcheon's foul-mouthed faux pas in Love Actually. Or maybe Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan's spirited argument in When Harry Met Sally. What about that one where Charlie got pelted with tennis balls? You didn't ask, but I'm sure you're at least a little curious about how me being pelted with tennis balls turns into a happily ever after situation. I went to a suburban private prep school outside of Milwaukee in Brookfield, Wisconsin. Naturally, most of the families there were pretty wealthy. I was only there because my dad taught AP English and some history, so we got a pretty sweet deal on tuition. One of the perks of going to a high school where everyone grew up in households a solid three or four tax brackets above yours is that the trips are really fun. Every year, the school's senior class had a chance to go on a trip to a random destination somewhere else in the country. It was usually somewhere warm, since the trip ride always fell before Valentine's Day, and February in Wisconsin's about as dismal a time and place as you can get. The senior trip in 2018 was to a dude ranch somewhere in Arizona. For the most part, the trip was pretty tame. Lots of scheduled time for mountain biking, hikes in the desert, horseback riding, and random arts and crafts. With plenty of free time around the meals and later in the evening. I love being outside here in the Midwest, at least during the half a year that the weather permits. Sadly, my lungs don't. But Arizona's warm, dry weather was as kind on my lungs as the breeze was on my skin. I was loving it. Even just lying on a patch of grass and breathing was enough to entertain me. One day, after lunch, I was playing tennis with my friend Drew. Of course, our definitions of playing tennis were different. For him, it was stockpile the balls, wait for Charlie to put down his racket to go get some water, and open fire. For me, it was just about keeping a volley going. Stupidly, I set my racket down, turned my back, and set out towards the water cooler. By the time I had water in my hand, Drew closed the distance between himself and my racket. It didn't hurt that much. It was just kind of annoying. At first. Drew always was a vindictive little bastard, so of course he started whipping him at me when he realized the first few were tolerable. I bolted out of there. Ironically, I didn't get that far until I got hit by another ball. Annoyed, I shot an unpleasant glare in the direction of the ball, thinking it was Drew, miraculously breaking the laws of physics. I'm glad looks can't kill. Sorry, the only new girl in my class that year, Olivia Jonas said over her shoulder, turning around to catch the ball as I tossed it back. Olivia, don't be sorry. That was my bad. Sorry, Charlie. One of my oldest classmates, Gabby Hoggett, yelled from the other side of the court. Actually, I'm getting a little tired. Wanna hop in, Charlie? She said, gesturing to her tennis racket. I was more than happy to oblige. I'd sat with Olivia once or twice at lunch, but I'd never even spoken to her. I didn't even think I knew her name at the time. Unfortunately, I have about as much game as a cactus. We chatted as we lobbed the ball back and forth. Just not about much. Really, just small things. Do you like Star Wars? What's your favorite book? Do you play much tennis? It felt like the ice was being broken, or maybe melted in the hot sun when it was time for dinner. The cute was met. I already had my in, even if I didn't really get to talk to her for the rest of the trip. Luckily for me, what I can only call a force of nature, or maybe even an act of God, brought us back together before we got home. Our flight from Phoenix to Milwaukee was completely cancelled due to a snowstorm. The school's admissions director, a known badass, miraculously arranged a free hotel and a new flight back home for no extra charge. 
The hotel's courtyard had a bunch of banquets set up, and kids from my grade were all playing cards or video games or just hanging out. And there she was, sitting at a table with a few mutual friends of ours. That was my chance. Again. But I didn't really know her that well, so my only idea was more tennis. I still don't know if she was being nice or genuinely enjoyed my company, but she agreed to go to the tennis court with me. My friend Brian tagged along, but I kept making up new things for him to go back to our hotel room to get so I could have some alone time with Olivia. It wasn't immediately happily ever after, but soon after we'd connected on social media and started chatting almost immediately. After we got back, a passing wistful glance evolved into the occasional wave in the hallway. Eventually, it all came to a head and I asked her out. That was nearly four years ago. We've seen and grown so much together. Most people in our lives don't know us without each other anymore. Until last Thursday. Long distance was hell on us both, and it just got to be too much for her. She said she thought she wanted to end things, but wanted some time to think. And now I don't know where we stand. No matter what happens on the other side of the eventual conversation we have a few weeks down the road, I don't regret a single one of the movies, late night phone calls, video dates, meals, kisses, or trips we shared together. In fact, I wouldn't be me without them. I might not even be without them. It's not healthy to be overly nostalgic if you drown yourself in it, but it's nice to dip a toe in here or wade in there. I've found comfort in static before. It's the essence of something, a thought that hasn't quite formed itself into words, or the moment after a person leaves your home where you still feel them, but they've all but disappeared from your surroundings. Everything that is something exists in static. Everything and nothing. Altogether. Now, I know static is bad, objectively, for the world of radio. Obviously, you don't want to air static on your radio station. It's dead air. Static means there should be something else here. It, it means more is on the tip of your tongue, but it's just not out yet. As an artist, I find comfort in the unformed words of static and in the knowledge that it's a blank page. Here, nothing exists. But something did and something will again drag itself from this death valley and make itself known once again. As a person of the radio, however, I've grown to despise static for its blinking reminder that its only purpose is to highlight where I'm making a mistake. Static is an opportunity, yes, and I thank it for that, but it's also the glaring blank page ever expanding and almost yelling at me for not filling it. And for that, static and I are at odds. When you listen to the same thing being played over and over and over, your brain starts to desperately find something in that space. Even if there's nothing, listening to that buzz being endlessly draped around you can eventually lead to false messages being played back to you. This way, Static and I converse. Sometimes I find myself with headphones plugged into my computer and a blank audio file in front of me, and I just sit and listen. I'm a great listener. I can sit for hours just listening to that slight mind-numbing buzz that means my headphones aren't doing anything. And neither am I. Everything's blank and empty and buzzing for me to breathe life into that emptiness. Yet I'm paralyzed, listening. Fingers hovering over the keys, mouth hanging open in front of a mic, and ears trained on the static. Every door is open, but my feet won't move. This is when static speaks to me. Here you find the proof that you can't create, it says. You are never an artist. You are someone that fell into creation by accident. It takes no skill to happen upon something that looks or sounds good. You can't possibly replicate it anyway. I almost have to take my headphones off before it speaks again. Louder still this time. Do you really believe that anyone around you sees you as someone worthy of creation? Worthy of being their peer? Could a sheep in wolf's fur keep up with the pack when it really counts? Of course not. The weight of empty space is far grander than anything one would expect. Empty, nothing static presses me down, compressing my muscles and bones and will. Swirling around me are fears I thought were almost non-existent, but that static dredges up for me. But somehow, someway, I find myself moving again. Autonomously, my fingers find their place on the keyboard and something takes form. Without input, my mouth is moving, and I'm making something out of the taunting static. Taking the granite-heavy dead air and carving away at the corners, desperately clawing to make something, anything. I have to make something. That's where static's grasp is relinquished, and fear and doubt turn into comfort. A switch is flipped, and suddenly, as soon as I've pressed that first button, static is my doorway to craftsmanship and expression and creation and no longer my roadblock. 
Static is taking my hand and leading me to the next project. With the act of beginning, Static becomes conquerable. Static becomes the opportunity it is meant to be. For me and Static, the beginning is the hardest part. I want to find the bliss in the blank page, in the air waiting to be filled. But there's voices that are hard to pass by. Voices that hide in the static that should be opening doors for me. When creation is all I have, static is my ally. And yet, fear finds a grip on me through it. But with that first step, that impossible beginning, I find myself ready to carve into the opportunity. I'd like us to be friends, static. You allow me to exist, and yet sometimes it feels like you don't want me to. And yet, miraculously, I do. I create, and like dead-aired static will continue to haunt the dreams of every radio station's manager, I will continue to do so. Static's paradox may haunt me forever, but it cannot stop me. I won't allow myself to give in to the whispers of the static. I will take that first step, and every one after that. Static is my Everest, and I came to climb. This has been the Radio Storytelling Showcase for the Fall Class of 2021. This is WCRX, Columbia College, Chicago.